The following audio is from Norris Ferry Community Church. More information about Norris Ferry Community Church is available at norrisferrychurch.org. Thank you. Please be seated. What a wonderful group. You know, I got a word before the service that um, in the early service, I had my mic on and everybody in the coffee shop heard me singing a solo uh, during those songs. So you're welcome for that. Obviously, that's why there's such a crowd here. They heard I was singing a solo. Yeah, sorry about that. I made sure it was off on this one. But uh, it was great to have Kevin filling in last week. You know, Kevin was talking about how he was a doorman. He was not a doorman. He was the doorman at uh, the Albuquerque Hotel or whatever fancy place it was, fancy smance. But all I could do is just picture this tall, slender Kevin with this tall, round cap and a bill. I don't know. That just looks, he looks like a doorman. I think he missed his calling. I mean, it was perfect. But it got me thinking about my early, my first job. Uh, I was at Louisiana Tech, graduated in accounting, and was honored to get an incredible offer from Arthur Anderson Accounting Firm. Arthur Anderson in Houston. It was the largest office of Anderson. It was the most profitable office of Anderson. And Anderson at the time was the largest, most profitable accounting firm in the world. So I was somebody, I'm just telling you, I got a job at the largest, most profitable office of the largest, most profitable accounting firm in the entire world. At least I thought I was somebody. So they gather us all together, send us off to Chicago, spend ridiculous amounts of money trying to get us to think we're somebody, and basically they're just buying us because they are about to work us like dogs. And so, but we didn't know that yet. We all think we're somebody at these gatherings, you know, and they're treating us like somebody. So we go down to our, our back to our respective uh, jobs and, and start our careers. And, and so we're plugged into whatever audit team we are in our first audit team. I was at Natural Gas Clearing House in Houston, and I was joining a team of seven other people sitting around a table is what you do as an auditor. It's really exciting work. You sit around a table for long, long, long hours, usually in some nasty closet because they're trying to make you as uncomfortable as possible. So you'll leave as soon as possible. So I'm there getting to know the team. And, uh, my, uh, the manager of that team looks at me and says, you know, congratulations, welcome to the team. You know, you're really somebody if you got an offer. And I was like, oh, an offer from Anderson. And I was like, thank you. Because, yeah, you are really somebody. And there was this pause. And I was like, and then he says, somebody get me some coffee. <laughs> and then he goes, and on your way back, I'm going to need somebody to make some copies for me. Oh, my word. I found out real quick what it meant to be somebody new at the firm. Somebody was going to be serving the manager on that job. He was making sure that he got the proper perspective on who the boss was and who the servant was. And people usually, when I tell that story, ask, did you get him coffee? Absolutely. I got him coffee, and I made him copies because he was the boss, and I did what I was told. And so that's the way it is in the world, isn't it? In the real world, people tell me a lot of times, they say, I'm glad you know what it's like in the real world, meaning not in the church. They're like, in the real world, it's not like it is in the church, is it? Well, in the real world, it's all about getting ahead. It's all about number one. It's all about getting as high as I can, and it doesn't matter how many of your heads I step on to get there. 
It's about backstabbing. It's about doing whatever it takes, brown-nosing, self-promoting, doing whatever it takes to get ahead, to, to, to be somebody. You know, all of us have within us this longing, this desire to be somebody. And as I thought about this week, I thought, where does that come from and is that fully bad? Is it all wrong? And as I thought about Genesis, we see the creation account, Genesis 1 and 2, God created us. And he said, you will reign and rule over this earth, subdue it, fill the earth, be fruitful, multiply. So I think there is a healthy version of being made in the image of God that that creates within us this idea that, that we should aspire to greatness. We should, we should see ourselves as God has put us to reign and rule. But the problem is sin perverts that. And we see in the world, the effects of that is that we aspire to greatness at the cost of others. Instead of just finding our greatness in serving the Lord. And he gives us his greatness to share in. And so... What we see in the business world, it can be ruthless. And, and in our text today, we see that, that culture of self-promotion at the cost of others has started to, to sneak in to the early community group of Jesus with the 12 disciples. We're going to see how Jesus responds to a couple of disciples who are trying to establish themselves. They make a power grab. They make a glory grab And and we're going to see how Jesus responds to this. And he's going to teach us how it should be in here compared to how it is out there in the quote-unquote real world. Lord, would you teach us this morning? Lord, would your spirit please move in our hearts, give us hearts of faith, faith in Christ, our great king, our great ransom, that we might aspire to be great in the kingdom according to the way you define it. Teach us this morning. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right, so here's the outline. We're going to look at the request, the response, and then the point. First, the request. In Matthew 20, verse 20, on Mother's Day, we see a mother prominently playing a role here in the scene. It says, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to Jesus with her sons in tow, and kneeling before Jesus, she asked for something. And Jesus said to her, What do you want? She said, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand, one at your left hand, in your kingdom. Let my babies be great. At first when I read this, I thought, Is this like a failure to launch situation? that the two kids are still living at home, and she's like, take them, do something with them. I just picture this overbearing mother, southern mother, that's just dragging these kids and like, come on, mom, I don't want to do it. They're like, come on, tell them, tell them what you want. I don't want to. Make them king, make them your princes, make them your left hand and your right hand. Now, what's the context here? What's going on in the, the text? We see in Matthew 20, verse 18, a little passage that was between last week and this week. And this really sets the tone for what's going on inside their minds. In Matthew 20, verse 18, Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man, that's Jesus, the royal title of the future eschatological king. He's the Son of Man. It says, we're going to Jerusalem, Jesus says. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. 
and he will be raised on the third day. So you see what's going on. Jesus has just announced it's all about to go down. He's been teaching them about the coming of the kingdom. He says, the kingdom is here. And they're like, wait, what are you talking about? And he's been teaching them. We're in our fourth teaching discourse that Jesus has been explaining things to him. And he says, all right, we're about to head to Jerusalem, and it's all going down. I'm going to be tortured. I'm going to be mocked and flogged. I'm going to be crucified. And they're going, oh, it's time to establish the kingdom. And mama says, boys, come here. We need to get you in position to be number one and number two in the kingdom. And we go, wait, who is this woman? Who is this mother? Now, as I did research for the sermon on Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday sermon, I read a lot of D.A. Carson's research on all these different Marys and all these different women that are showing up in these scenes in the Gospels. And what he concludes is this woman... The mother of James and John is named in Mark, the Gospel of Mark. She's named Salome. She's Jesus' mother's sister. So this is Aunt Salome. <laughs> this is Jesus' Aunt Salome. And John and James are his cousins. And she's thinking and they're thinking, Dude, he's, he's family. He's about to be king of the kingdom. And there's only 12 of us. And they ain't family. We are. And what happens in their, ro- in their world is the king's family is going to be royalty. And so it's pretty natural for her to say, look, Jesus, you're going to be the king sitting on your throne like we see in Rome, this incredibly powerful throne. And my two boys are your cousins. And so can they sit at your right hand and at your left hand? And so before we come down too hard on Aunt Salome, we must admit that all of us have within us these tendencies to want to make power grabs. These tendencies to want to grab some little glory for ourselves. It's in all of our hearts. I don't think any of us would like to admit it or, or have it play out so publicly for everybody to see, but if you could play on the video what's gone in my heart and my mind in different scenarios, it'd be just as ugly, and I know it's true for all of us. In fact, last week I was out of town, and, and Kevin was telling me at the members meeting he was going to give all the community group leaders some recognition. He's going to have them all stand, appreciate them, and give them a gift card. And the first thing that thought in my mind was, oh, no, this is not good. Because I'm thinking... Someone's going to be sitting there going, well, I served for five years. I never got a gift card. I'm like, we've never done this before, Kevin. I mean, I hate those famous words. We've never done that before. But someone's not going to like this, Kevin. But I stayed quiet. I was like, that sounds like a great new idea. Make things better. But I know what I'd be thinking if I'd served for seven years and never got a gift card. Where where my gift card? Is this a retroactive appreciation? I mean, how's this going to work? Seven years times how much was that gift card? Okay, let's fork it up. Mother's Day is coming up. I could use that. Take them to dinner. We all want to be appreciated. We all want to get our our bit. We all want a little recognition. Maybe you've served in this church year after year after year. You've been a faithful member for years. You've been a faithful co-leader for years. You've been a faithful community group leader for years. You've faithfully served on your service team. And you're going, no one's asked me to be an elder. 
Or your wife's going, why aren't they asking you to be an elder? Or your mama's going, why hadn't, you, why hadn't they talked to you about being an elder? You'd be the best elder, better than that elder. We all have something in our heart that craves that recognition, that prestige, that authority, that power, that, that something. We want to be somebody. So what does Jesus have to say in response to this power grab? When she says the right and the left, she's saying the positions of power. We see in Scripture that that's what it means. Uh, let me backtrack. Samuel, 2 Samuel 16, 6. All the mighty men were standing at the king's right hand and the left hand. Those are the positions of power. So they're asking for power. They're asking for greatness in the kingdom when they see the opportune moment. So what is Jesus' response? We see in verse 22 and 23 his response. Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we are able. He said to them, well, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left hand is mine to grant. But it is, it is not, excuse me, to sit, but to sit at my right hand and my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. So what's he saying? Basically, Jesus begins his response by saying, you don't have a clue. You don't have a clue what you're asking. You don't have a clue what we're doing. You don't have a clue how this works. You don't have a clue. You don't know what you're asking me here. In these verses, we see the disciples and their mama don't really understand how things work in God's kingdom. There are several things they don't understand, but the one main idea that they don't understand that becomes the point of the text that Jesus wants them to say, you don't understand what greatness is in my kingdom. They're basically jockeying position to be great. They want to be the greatest two in the kingdom. And before he clearly makes the point, Jesus starts with this concept of suffering. Because in Jesus' economy, in his culture, in his world, in Jesus' kingdom, suffering is associated with greatness. Greatness is not accomplished by avoiding suffering. Greatness is accomplished by going through suffering. Everything in our minds tells us the opposite of that, doesn't it? But greatness is accomplished going through suffering in his world. So he talks about suffering in verse 22. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Now, if you know your New Testament, you think of Jesus' prayer in the garden. Oh, Lord, that this cup would pass from me. The cup is referring to what he just said is going to happen in Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested and condemned and crucified. I'm going to be suffering. I'm going to be flogged. I'm going to be terribly, I'm going to suffer terribly. That's the cup that he brings up upon their request for greatness. They say, we want to be great. And he says, you don't know what you're asking Can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink? So at first, they don't understand. There's two things going on. First, Jesus, we need to understand that that he has a unique role, that he is the one 
intermediate, the one mediator between God and man. He is the one God-man. His sacrifice is unique. He is the pioneer of our faith. He alone could give his life because he is the perfect man, the God-man, as the perfect sacrifice for sinners. And so there's a uniqueness about the cup that he drank, that he alone is the Isaiah 53 son of suffering servant who gives his life as the ransom for his people. He alone is the unique Daniel 7 son of man, which refers to the eschatological coming king who will reign and rule over this earth. There's a uniqueness about Jesus that no one can drink that cup. His blood and his blood alone offers the forgiveness of sins. No one else can do that. And so he's talking about that when they say, we want to be great. And he says, I'm the only great one there is. You can't drink this cup. And so Jesus alone is worthy of your hopes, your dreams, your desire to be great must be found only in the forgiveness of of the blood of Jesus Christ. But then they say, in response, they should have said, when he said, are you able to drink this cup? They should say, oh, no, uh-uh. Yeah, ooh, sorry, we should not never even ask. Bad idea. Mom, what were you thinking? It's not what they said. He said, can you drink the cup that I am to drink? They said, yes, we can. We are able. Now, I think this is a good, actually a good, sincere heart desire of these disciples. In the text, we don't see anything that says otherwise. They seem to be genuinely committed, faithful, sincere disciples. They just don't quite yet understand, a lot like us, the timing of things and the nature of things. Their thinking, very physical kingdom, is about to be established by Jesus with force and it's about to happen, and we're his family, and he's called us, and we, they're saying, we're ready. We're ready to serve. We're ready to die for the cause. And he says, can you really drink this cup? And they're like, yeah, let's go. And then he says, you will drink my cup. He affirms them. He says, yes, you will. You will suffer for following me. And we read in Acts chapter 12, verse 2, James, this is the one, James and John, James became the first apostolic martyr. He died by the sword for following Jesus. And so in that sense, he did drink the cup of suffering. And tradition, it's not in scriptures for sure, but most think that John was exiled to Patmos for his following of Christ. And so in that sense, they did drink the cup that Jesus drank in a general suffering sense. This is a reminder, all of us, to follow Christ is a call to suffer. And we must understand the timing and nature of God's kingdom. We must have our heads straight on that because the nature of his kingdom is, first of all, spiritual, and only finally when he comes back, it's going to be physical, And so the first stage of his kingdom is a entering into his sufferings where we die to self-interest, self-promotion, and we live to serve and give our lives in service to Christ who is our king. And then when he comes back one day as the son of man, the king of kings, he will then and only then 
destroy his enemies, and crown us as fellow kings, over, rulers over this earth, as we will see in just a minute. But the first stage, the first crown that we wear with Jesus is a crown of thorns. It's a crown of suffering. It's a crown of bleeding and mocking and scourging and selflessness and self-giving crown. The crown we wear now is the crown of thorns like Jesus. And when he comes back, he's going to exchange those crowns, as we will see. So the glory is to be enjoyed eternally in the next life, but it's experienced through suffering. So in verse 23, we see what Jesus says. Now that Jesus has dealt with the suffering, connected that dot, now he says, now let me answer your question about ruling. He said to them, you will drink my cup, you will suffer, but to sit at my right hand and in my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Jesus is making the point they don't understand how it works, what ruling looks like, what it means. They don't even know what thrones are. They don't, even know what, they don't know what they're talking about. And Jesus refers to the fact that such positions of ruling authority has already been granted by the Father. I think it's helpful to go to Matthew 25, verse 34 here. In Matthew 25, 31 through 34, Jesus is speaking about that last day when the Son of Man does come back and he does establish his physical, powerful kingdom. He comes back as a, as a, as a, as a lion, as a powerful warrior instead of the suffering servant which he came the first time. Listen to what he says. Picture yourself standing here on that day as a disciple of Jesus Christ having gone through a lifetime of selfless, sacrificial service and suffering for his name's sake. He says this, when the Son of Man, royal king coming back, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne of power and before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as The shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And then in verse 34, he says, Then the king will say to those on his right, the sheep, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Come, reign and rule. Here's your royal crowns of authority. Be great. Rule over my dominion. Do what I talked about in Genesis 1 and 2. Subdue the earth. Fill the earth with my glory over the new heavens and the new earth. So Jesus is saying that day is coming. That day of reigning and rule is coming. But the way there is through sacrificial selflessness, sacrificial service to others. But there will be a significant delay in the meantime between those two crowns, between the crown of thorns and the crown of glory. So Jesus uses their request for greatness to explain, you don't understand how this all works in my kingdom. And then in 25 and through 28, he finally makes the point that he's been making. He says but in verse 25, but Jesus called them to himself. In verse 24, it says the other 10 were indignant. You see, the other 10 disciples are like, really? Really, James? Really, John? Really, Aunt Salome? 
Are you really going to make this power grab? And you're going to take advantage and try to step on our heads to get ahead. And they were indignant. And see, that's what self-promotion does. It destroys, it divides, it messes up community that is built on the foundation of humble service under the king. And then Jesus is like, oh, brother, it's, this is not good. It's getting bad. This community is getting divided by self-interest. And so in verse 25, Jesus calls them together to make his point. He says, look, you know the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. You hear the, the pecking order that in the outside my community, Jesus is saying, this is how they do it in the world. They're all about oppressiveness. They're all about asserting their authority over people. They're all about stepping on heads. And that's what greatness looks like in the world. But he says in verse six, 26, that's not how it's going to be in here. That's not how it works with me. He says, with me, with my people, in my community, in my people's marriages, in my people's workplaces, in my people's churches, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man, there is no higher title. There is no greater authority. There is no other position that deserves to be served than the Son of Man. That's the great high eschatological King of God's kingdom. Even as He, the Son of Man, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is Isaiah 53's prophecy that the Lamb of God, who had, Philippians talks about, that he emptied himself of all of his glory, did not consider it something to be grasped unto, but he let go of it, and he entered into our sufferings, entered into our humanity, entered into all kinds of terrible torture, mental, physical torture, spiritual torture, in order that we might be ransomed from sin that he might give his life so that we could find life, that he took on death so that we could have life out of death. He says, that's what it's like for my people. His life, his death, his resurrection transforms lives transforms values, transforms communities, transforms marriages, transforms workplaces. All relationships are transformed as we come into Christ. As he fills us with his spirit, he sets us free from slavery to self-interest, from slavery to self-promotion, from slavery to self-glorification, from slavery to all about me getting mine. He ransomed us from that. He purchased us from that. He set us free from that. So that those who trust in Christ are different. So that church, so much as it represents the true followers of Christ, is radically different. Marriages between two believers 
as they are trying to die to self with God's enablement and as hard as that is, but, but trying every day to fight not against each other, but to fight against the, the selfish desires of our heart and to help each other fight against the world, the flesh, the devil, and to say, I'm here to serve you. I'm here to lay my life down to make you better. I'm here to give you life. That it, it just looks so different than any marriages we see in the world where bosses in their workplaces don't view being bosses and CEOs and powerful executives as, look how many people serve me. Look how great I am because of the way I oppress my people. But instead, they lay their lives down to bless their employees. And it makes it radically different. You see, when Christ changes us, we don't need the glory. Because we know that God has all the glory and promises to bring us glory. We don't need all the power because we know that God has all the power and everything that we will ever need. He says, I got whatever you need. I will provide it. And one day you will have the power over this kingdom. We don't need to make a name for ourselves because Christ has made a name for us and it's found in him as Christians, as saints, children of the king. We don't need to jockey for position because one day he will put us in our place and we have our position in Christ already. In that same text of Matthew 25, speaking of that last day when he comes and establishes that final kingdom and he's handing out new crowns, he's taking the crown of thorns off And he's placing on what Revelation 2.10 calls the crown of life. 1 Peter 5.4 calls it the unfading crown of glory. 2 Timothy 4.8 calls it the crown of righteousness. So it's this beautiful picture of taking off the crown of suffering and placing on our heads the crown of his glory and his reward. Which, by the way, in that same scene in Revelations 4 and 5, all of us standing there with our crowns that he has given us to reward us, we hit our knees and we exchange our crowns. We toss our crowns at his feet and we say, worthy is the lamb who is only one who could open the lamb's book of life. But on that day, he says this to help us understand what suffering or what like. He says this, Matthew 25, 40. As you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So greatness in the kingdom of heaven, greatness in Jesus' economy, greatness in this church is Laying your life down to serve others, especially the least of these. Has Christ infiltrated your heart and given you that kind of view of greatness? Father, would you make this true of us? Thank you for showing us what greatness looks like in this life that we would be willing and set free from self-interest, self-promotion at the cost of others. May we instead be spending ourselves to bless others. Lord, we all know our hearts are filled with 
self-promotion and glorification, but you and your spirit have promised to gradually change us, make us better, make us into the image that you've called us to. I pray, Lord, that every day now that we as a church, that Norris Ferry Church would be known in this community, in this city, as a people who wear the crown of thorns as their sign of greatness and not a crown of their own glory. I pray that we will gladly take upon our heads this crown to serve others, knowing we are secure that one day when you return, you'll exchange that crown with your crown of glory. Lord, may we all who are sinners who fall short of the grace of God turn to you today as the only ransom for our sins, the only payment that's acceptable in God's eyes to pay for the price of our sin. I pray you will trust Christ today and during this song that you'll commit your life to trust Jesus alone for the salvation of your soul and that all of us will commit again to take upon ourselves the crown of thorns and to serve as we have been served. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Norris Ferry Community Church located in Shreveport, Louisiana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Norris Ferry Community Church, please visit us online at norrisferrychurch.org.